It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author David Wondrich to discuss his overlooked classic, Stomp and Swerve, How American Music Got Hot, 1843-1924. In this episode, David takes Nate way, way back into the history of American music, long before the invention of recording, to discuss how African-derived music in North America differs from its sister music in South America and the Caribbean, as well as America's primordial pop phenomenon, the minstrel show, and all the associated racist baggage that comes with it, country music's surprising roots in African-American music, and the black performers and songwriters who seized the opportunities presented to break the color barriers which had kept black performers off professional stages until nearly the turn of the 20th century. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why American music happened with your host, Nate Wilcox. And today I've got a very special guest, a guy I'm very excited to have on the show, but also one I was literally afraid to invite on. David Wondrich, the author of Stomp and Swerve. He's not only one of America's leading historians of mixology. Is that correct, David? Uh, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) It's not really a formal field, put it that way. But you, you you write about uh, the history of, of uh, liquor mixing for GQ. This is this is correct. Esquire. Esquire. Forgive yes. me, my bad. We can we can go back and take that out. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> if if you want, we could. Um, no, I don't care. I wrote good. for Esquire for 17 years. Now I now I write for the Daily Beast, and uh, awesome. I've written you know books. I won the James Beard Award. All this stuff, all for that. But before that, I used to write about music. And that's when you wrote this book that I came across last year uh, in my inexplicably deepening obsession with American musical history. And the book is called Stomp and Swerve, American Music Gets Hot, from 1843 to 1924. And I've been going further and further back. And this is the only book I've found that is both willing to go further back than the beginning of recorded music and is focused on what we would call, what you call hot music, which is the synthesis of African-American and European music, most specifically African-American and and Celtic-American musics. Well, let me tell you how the book kind of came about, because that will explain its sort of weird, unique position, is I was going to write something I called the prehistory of rock and roll, and this was in the late 90s. Uh, At the same time, I had just finished graduate school and started teaching, so I didn't have a lot of time. But I started on the book, and I was going to start around 1918 with Louis Armstrong and uh, King Oliver. And the more I looked into it, the further back I had to push things because I started to realize, wait a minute, this wasn't the beginning at all. What I thought was the beginning was, you know, sort of the the midpoint of this huge transformation and this uh, birth of rock and roll. And so I started, uh, I'm, a, I'm a very kind of literal straight ahead thinker, so I started writing at the beginning, and by the time my publisher was howling for the book, I'd only gotten about halfway. <laughs> so I realized, but at the same time, I realized that that was actually the most uh, unique part of the story and would make a book on its own. So I stopped before I got into uh, 
the 1920s hillbilly and 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 hot jazz and uh, swing bands and uh, the birth of R&B and all that. But that all that stuff's been talked about. Exactly. Uh, the stuff I talked about, not really. But the weirdness of the book is I kind of wrote it as a as a work of rock criticism, not as music history. So it's it's uh, the music history people were kind of flummoxed by it because it's it's not written in in, in music history style. And the rock people were just like, this stuff is really old. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And the, and the music history style, as much as I have plowed my way through several college textbooks on American musical history, they tend to be dry and dusty. And this book, I think, I can't say it's as alive as the music it describes because nothing really is as alive as American music in its purest, deepest, darkest uh, form and un an undocumented form, but I can say the book is lively and really entertaining and enormously educational. But first, we've got to get one thing out of the way. You talk yeah, about absolutely. how, uh, if I can quote from the preface, um, you say these days, and this is 20 years old at this point, so it's even worse now. These days, the odds are pretty good that even the most hardened bluegrass fiend, blues scholar, jazz bow, or ragtimer grew up listening to the same crap as the rest of us. Anyway, the line of influence from antebellum minstrel Daniel Decatur Emmett to Kid Rock, from Burt Williams, the first black man to appear on a Broadway show to Outcast, is unbroken, though rarely acknowledged. And you say there's two reasons. One is technical. You know, we don't, we didn't have recording until what the 1870s, 1890s. Most of this, you know, this stuff's off and running by the 1840s. But the second reason, the second, and this is your words, this brings us to our second bigger reason. During the eight decades covered by this book, as during the eight since, the dominant issue in American music was the tense dynamic relationship between its African elements and its European ones, which is a polite way of saying that white men and women were imitating, often very poorly and not always with the best intentions, what they heard black men and women playing and singing. Much of this imitation involves language and stereotypes that make people very, very uncomfortable. Misty-eyed evocations of plantation days, crude and violent tales of the supposed realities of ghetto life like that. A lot of it is just plain racist trash, music made with intent to insult. Um, as the wise and worldly Lord Chesterfield instructed his son, mimicry is the lowest and most illiberal of all buffoonery. The person mimicked is insulted, and an insult is never forgiven. Whether it should be forgiven is not mine to say. Um, but then you say, whether it should nonetheless be examined, though, is a different question. Distressing as this stuff can be, it's all we've got. And so I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I mean, it, as you say, it has only gotten more sensitive since. But, and, and in terms of, like, bringing a lot of this stuff back as popular entertainment, I would say hell no. But if you're going to look at the history of American music, there's nowhere else to look. You know, that's the problem. That's what we're what, that's what we're up against. Uh, and I th and I think it's very important to acknowledge that the history of American music is no more racist, probably less racist than the history of America, which is you know I think one of the beauties of the Black Lives Matter mo mo movement is it's really forced us to focus on just how racist our history what is and, and continues uh, yeah, to be. Exactly. This, this is not a problem we solved in the 60s. No, it was not a problem that was solved. It goes back to the very beginning of the country. It's baked into the country's DNA practically. You know, it's something that people got to work on every day. 
and uh, it's baked into the music. What amuses me the most is the attempt to deny the black influence and the influence of this theft uh, that, that's kind of moved into uh, things like country music, which you know presents itself as being this completely sort of lily white. Uh, where just Appalachian music uh, kind of that came over from England in the 1700s, and that's our roots. That's not the roots at all. Country music is completely Africanized. All types of American music are completely Africanized. And Even all you bluegrass. have to do to, to prove your case is, is point to the dominant instrument of bluegrass, which is probably seen as the widest of all American musics, and yet yeah. the dominant instrument is the banjo, which was invented where? Africa. Exactly. <laughs> completely, you know, it's a complete African instrument. And, you know, bluegrass music is a great, uh, is also just kind of a great uh, case of all this stuff because uh, bluegrass music was almost explicitly uh, pushed as being a cleaned up, more traditional, let's get rid of all the, uh, the minstrel show influence version of old time music, as it's called, which is the music that, uh, came out of the minstrel shows and went, uh, you know, kind of went folk. And uh, so it, it's attempting to be, to put itself as being really very white, but then you get into bluegrass music and you realize that they've got all these, like uh, what they would call takeoff solos, long improvisational solos. And that's completely absent from the European music. And that's uh, completely part of the uh, African-American tradition. So it's, it's almost, something that you can't pull out. Exactly. And I, th I think, you know, I consider all of America one big family, and you just can't disconnect the DNA musically any more than you can disconnect the DNA physically. And I, But I want to switch a little bit to your personal origin story. In the book, you tell this story mm -hmm. about when you're a kid and two albums that you bought around the same time, Never Mind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols, which you describe as, I thought it was intense, more intense than anything <laughs> Ever. Uh, and the second album you picked up right around this time was something you'd never heard of before called King of the Delta Blues Singers Volume 2 by Robert Johnson. What, yeah, what were you uh, thinking when you bought those albums? Uh, well, the Sex Pistols were, you know, I, I was into music and I had a subscription to Rolling Stone. And uh, so I got, uh, I, I went out and got the Sex Pistols album when it turned out. And I was like, holy Hannah, what the hell is this thing? You know, this uh, kind of sums up all adolescent angst and anger and misfit feelings and all that kind of stuff and just throws it right back in people's faces. So it was, it was you know, profoundly oppositional. And uh, the Robert Johnson one I got because uh, I, I had uh, checked out from the school library a little book called Feels Like Going Home. Uh, which is the, hist the history of uh, I'm I'm blanking for a moment on the author's name because it's been so long since I've uh, read all this stuff. Uh, and this is something I should be able to tell you, but I am. Yeah, and I, I know, I know. It'll it'll it'll, it'll come to me afterwards. Anyways, you know, one of the great music writers, and uh, he had a chapter on Robert Johnson. So I saw this record, and it was uh, a cutout, and so I bought it, and took it home and I put it on and I was like, Oh, punk rock, <laughs> you know, it was exactly. like just a slashing. Yeah. And there's some of the same feelings that this slashing, like intense, uh, 
deeply felt uh, it sounded crude. I, I learned later by, you know, repeated listening how not crude it was. But at first listen, you know, if you're used to like polished stuff and uh, the stuff that made it on the radio, kind of like as blues, stuff like cream, you know, it was a, it was not like cream. Definitely not. And and Peter Goralnik is the author. It feels like yeah. Unhealthy. Thank so you. I, God, I can't believe I I, I I blanked on that. But uh, you know, I haven't I haven't studied this stuff in a very long time. I still listen to all the music. But uh, yeah, yeah no, that's, a, that's no an amazing book. Yeah, brains brains are rotting as as we speak. That's just the nature of, of, <laughs> that <laughs> of is human. Sad. You know, I, I think at a faster rate than ever now. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yes, speaking from my experience, that's definitely the case. But one thing I like about the book is, is uh, you know, you've got the preface and you explain kind of the genesis of the book, but then you get into the introduction and you get into the theory of the book. And I'm, I'm a sucker for theory. And so you've got this theory that, you know, the first off, the book is about hot music. So if, if it's stayed, if it's stodgy, it's off topic. Even something like the Jubilee Singers that are absolutely as key to the development of American music or and especially African-American music as anybody are not really in your category. Explain that a little bit. Well, again, you know, the book was was conceived as a prehistory of rock and roll. So I was looking at the stuff that was directly in the rock and roll tradition. And that that meant, you know, I had to leave out a lot of stuff like the Jubilee Singers who are really interesting and uh you know, uh, who are uh, produced a lot of wonderful records, but they were kind of aiming at an African-American art music. And uh, I was looking more for just the, the kind of uh, cheap throwaway stuff like rock and roll that, uh, you know, managed to uh, resonate uh, beyond its age by its, its vitality. And uh, so that, yeah, it kind of was liberating because I didn't have to write about everything, you know. I could just write about uh, this this uh, this one tradition, this this strain in American music. That, but that's the strain that became uh, dominant in American music success worldwide. And uh, so it was actually, you know, sort of the uh, the rejected stone that became the cornerstone the cornerstone of the temple. Absolutely. And I think you do a great job of direct, drawing a direct line from minstrelsy to ragtime to jazz. And the implications are very clear from there. You know, people like Ed Ward, my frequent guest on the show, mm -hmm. have connected the dots between jazz to swing to rhythm and blues to rock and roll to hip hop, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one, one thing you, you quote I, or a quote I want to cite here. It says, what if our ears tell us that Possum in the Hayloft by a Cracker Fiddle Band from Georgia, Nixed by Mir by a Yiddish clarinet combo from Hester Street, and Peephole Dragged by a Black Cornet Blower from the south side of Chicago are equally hot, although they seem to have nothing in common. How do you explain that? And he says, you say, fortunately, I'm not a musicologist. So there are other ways of approaching this question. And explain how you solve this dilemma. What, how you define hot? The two factors, the two ingredients that go into making hot music. Well, I'd spent uh, uh, ten years playing in bands, so I was not completely, you know, free of. Uh, I had some musical knowledge, but I was definitely not a musicologist and uh, didn't have any technical vocabulary to, to discuss music. But I also had a PhD in comparative literature, which taught me to be sort of fearless about uh, 
uh, applying theories to stuff and, 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 and trying to get to the essences of things so you can compare them while discarding all the, all the flourishes. And so I, I started, you know, kind of so I spent months on this trying to figure out what these things actually have in common. And uh, I, I came up with this, it's not like so much a theory as it is a way of explaining things. And it's that hot music has, has two factors. It's got stomp, which is something we all know. That's the, just the, the strong, repetitive, banging on a head rhythm. Just bang, 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 bang. And all kinds of music have that. Some of it, uh, all kinds of dance music have it. Marches have it. Uh, music that we don't necessarily consider as hot. Electronic music is very good at that because you can program it in and it just goes right on, uh, unwavering. Uh, so that was, but that was definitely one factor that like the hillbilly music and the the other stuff has, uh, jazz band, you know, jazz jazz music from the twenties. It's got that uh, fast forward motion. But there and one question else. there, if I can jump in. Yeah. Uh, the title yeah, of the book and the title of the CD, you call it Stomp, but during the text of the book, you mostly call it Drive. Uh, that's because I had a publisher. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking, and, and yeah. I think Stomp and Swerve. I love alliteration, so uh, yeah, it's, yeah. But anyway, okay. I just want to clarify that when you say yeah, drive, it, it really, it really drive is is kind of what it what it what I'm talking about. It's that that you know that speed of the music. It's it's moving forward. It's got forward momentum, but you know forward momentum can can become monotonous. And hot music, the thing is, is is always it. What makes it hot is it's surprising. Uh, and for that, I came up with the uh, concept of swerve, which uh, I swiped from the classical poet Lucretius, who I'd spent a bunch of time studying. And I've got and, to read uh, this quote from Lucretius that I think yeah, uh, please. does a great job of defining it. I'm not going to read it in Latin, so forgive me to the two uh, don't, don't who, could, who would understand the original Latin. Um, but it's uh, Lucretius said, at some uncertain place in space and time, they deviated from their given course by just enough so you could say it changed. Yeah, this is uh, uh, Lucretius uh, explained the world by saying that atoms fall down in parallel. Basically, all the atoms are in free fall and, uh, and were like that until this thing, this swerve, he called it a quinamen in Latin, happened. And there's no explanation for it. It just happened. And one atom bumped into another one and that set off a chain reaction and that clumped atoms together into things and suddenly you've got the world. And that, that for me, it's that life force, that kind of inexplicable bit. Why is it doing this? You know, it, it, it's, there's no explanation for like stuff. It's like Louis Armstrong just blasting, like ripping up to the high notes. And just before he hits the high note, he suddenly backpedals and goes down the scale and then races up again to hit the high note. It's like, wait, why did he do that? You know, he had a climax, and he just made it 10 times as hot by backing off of it for a second. I just want to jump in because I'm uh, adding musical excerpts is a new thing we're doing on the show, so I'm pretty bad at it. But I, I really want to uh, include a sample right now of uh, a record you cite as having drive, which is Bessie Smith's seminal 1925 version of St. Louis Blues. So, Steph, if you could cue up just a couple minutes of that or 30 seconds or so. And then we'll follow it with an example of Swerve, which uh, I, you picked several really good ones. But the one that, that hit me uh, the closest 
um, was uh, ragtime obsessed trombonist Arthur Pryor smearing and blatting his way through trombone sneeze in 1902. So if we can just have a taste of those stuff, and then we'll be right back to the show. So now that we've heard some examples of of what you're talking about, and and to the untutored ear, I mean, this is wild shit. Uh, the, the the thing that hooked me on old music was when I was a kid, I got my hands on a cassette version of the Smithsonian collection of classic oh, yeah. country music and the Smithsonian collection of classic jazz music. And to say little minds were blown is an understatement. Just the recording quality alone became something. Uh, a future Pussy Galore and Yoko Ono fan was clearly born right there, you know, because <laughs> my, my love for the sheer noise of the sound of the 78 being recorded. Yeah. But you've got a great quote uh, from country music scholar Robert Cantwell uh, in his book Bluegrass Breakdown on, on what the European ear hears when Africa is in the house. That's your terminology. But, mm-hmm. but Cantwell says, Tones grow hair, go blind or explode. Notes bend, break, weaken, collapse, or leave home. Melodies compulsively juggle handfuls of notes or fling them wildly away. Rhythms spill over in syncopations. Horns growl, hiss, cough, and squeak. Banjos snarl, snap, and bite. Fiddles cry and wail. Singing voices shout, holler, call, moan, and weep. Fill with gravel, smoke, or weeds. Cower in the nasal cavities or in one corner of the mouth and sink luxuriously into some lower region of the anatomy and sometimes even slip into mere speech or something worse, like nonsense syllables. He's describing scatting there at the end, but tell yeah. me what, how you found this quote and what it means to you. Well, you know, I, I, read, a, I read whatever I could find on this stuff, which isn't a lot. It uh, wasn't a lot at the time, and it's still not a lot. There have been a couple big books since. I wrote Stomp and Swerve, but not not a lot. You know, it still hasn't been studied uh, to the degree that it should be. But when I read that, I mean, I thought that was just, A, a beautiful piece of writing. You know, just really, really strong, uh, evocative writing. But it also really uh, describes Swerve to me is it can be tonal, it can be melodic, it can be rhythmic. Uh, syncopation is Swerve, where you speed up uh, a little part of the, you know, of each measure. So that it's it the beat doesn't fall in the exact place that you're going to expect it to fall. There's all kinds of ways of swerving things, and it's it's just it's putting in almost this uh, this human element against the uh, divine element that is you know uh, uh, the harmony of the spheres aspects that you get in music, where it's uh, where music is applied mathematics, and, and swerve is is kind of the opposite of that. 
It's almost like quantum music or something. I mean, I feel like the yeah. Europeans were trying to systematize music. And obviously, you know, the Amer European musical tradition is one of the great gifts to world culture, as, as oh, you can yeah. see, just the way it's adopted in China so much now. Um, but there was this attempt to rationalize music and to understand music, like you say, in mathematical terms. And then we collide with Africa or we invade Africa, however you want to look at it. Um, but we hear all this music that's manifestly brilliant music. I mean, from day one, the Europeans had to acknowledge, wow, these people yeah. can sing and play, and yet they're not following any of our rules that we're trying to put together. They're breaking no, their music with is completely different, you know, and and, uh, and different in a, in a really compelling way also to the European ear, because uh, Europeans found music throughout the world in their in their uh, colonial and uh you know in their colonial experience and the only one that really got incorporated was african music which is interesting yes it's very interesting because i i'd say you could probably make a case for indian music at this point um oh yeah you know, yeah that's a, that's a good point but uh that took a while yeah that took a little while later and then and then you've got great traditions like chinese and japanese music which go way back and there's a lot of depth to them but they still remain very alien uh to the yeah, western they're, they're, ear same with like uh, native american music if you listen to like navajo recordings and things those have not really uh you know they they didn't uh, don't appear to have had a lot of influence in american music Yes, definitely not. But but you you also then break it down into something, a connection that I that had never occurred to me before. I think I understood it intuitively because North American music, obviously, North America produced rock and roll and jazz and hip hop and all this booming, thrusting, aggressive music, and we tend to associate that with African music. But you point out that all over the rest of the Americas, you actually have more African music, more directly influenced you know, Afro-Brazilian music, for example, or right. Afro-Caribbean music is actually closer to the music you hear in Africa than the music you hear in North America. And you sort of point a, a finger at at my people, the Scots-Irish people and the Irish, the Celtic folks here in America as being maybe the source of that. And, and explain some of that and the reasons why you think white music influenced African-American musicians more than it in North America, more than it may have influenced them in South America or the Caribbean? Well, there, there are a few reasons. Uh, one, uh, while researching this book, I looked, you know, I, I read some very big books on the history of slavery in the Americas, which is, you know, ne never a, a pleasant read, but always, uh, always, uh, always well uh, worth the time. Yeah. And, and you said, yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you actually pointed me at Hugh Thomas's Magisterial, The Slave Trade, which I have uh, skimmed and read some summaries of and read a couple of chapters. And yeah, if you want to learn uh, Hugh Thomas's Slave Trade, <laughs> yeah, that's I the mean, place. yeah. Oh my it's, God. Yeah. It is, it is a know. grim history. And unlike Germany, uh, you know, who has be at least begun to reckon with the, the Holocaust, America, I feel like has done nothing to reckon with the evil we have wreaked on our fellow. Certainly damn little. Damn yeah. little, you know, and then not God. <laughs> uh, there's there there are places of hope, but that's for another discussion. But yeah, uh, for sure, that's uh, that's way bigger than this show. But let's get back to the yeah. comparison between. So um, when you look ahead. at like how the straight slave trade worked in uh, North America, as opposed to how it was in uh, the Caribbean or South America, the Caribbean and South America were uh, you know these these. Uh, they had these huge plantations that were just 
charnel houses. They just kept shipping three people through and, you know, and, and throwing away the bodies. But there were very few uh, Europeans involved in, in their administration. It was uh, the culture there was just uh, was 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 very strongly African because there was no contact between the Africans and the Europeans uh, or very little. And then in the U.S., uh, or America, rather, in North America, a lot of the slaves were uh, parceled out and owned by small slaveholders. There was a much greater buy-in of, of in, into slavery, uh, but that meant that there were people who had like two or three slaves, and uh, and that these as opposed to two hundred or two thousand. Or... Yeah, exactly, exactly. And these people lived among uh, people who were not African. And so they had to adapt and uh, were forced into a new culture that, uh, you know, there was, it was very difficult to maintain a pure African culture. And I, I read a lot of uh, travel books uh, through America, especially through the South uh, from the 18th century and 19th century. Uh, it's always been an interest of mine, just even independent of, uh, of the music, but uh you see a lot of uh, depictions of African uh, enslaved people making music for things like white picnics. And they'd be playing banjos and also fiddles, which is not an African instrument. That was, uh, and the, the fiddle was brought from uh, England and also from Ireland uh, and was a uh, you know prominent European instrument uh, used for country dances in the Irish tradition and, you know, to a degree in the English tradition. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, and one point I'd like to uh, nudge out is that, you know, the fiddle or the violin is central to the high European tradition we were talking about earlier. But when you call it the fiddle, it's very Celtic and it's very key yeah. to the Celtic music, which is oddly enough, as you point out, a cousin of the kind of music you hear in West Africa where Arabian music mixed with with the native West African music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it 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 gets really it gets really complicated. But you've got you know in in a way you've got like string music is string music. One string instrument can easily play with another string instrument, and so you get these things where you you get the uh, banjo keeping the rhythm, and the uh, the violin or uh, the fiddle you know uh, playing uh, playing the melody. And you've got dance music. And I mean, this is really the beginnings of a unique American music is uh, with these depictions of musicians in places like Virginia and the Carolinas in the uh, in the late 18th century. So it, it really goes back. Of course, we've got no uh, strong de depiction of, or description of the music they're playing. And, you know, nobody wrote down, wrote it down in notation or paid all that much attention to it. But uh, clearly it was there. and. And it be, it got to the point where uh, a lot of uh, African transplants, a lot of these enslaved people, uh, mastered the violin. They mastered uh, Western instruments, uh, the European instruments, and uh, so you start to see these hybridized traditions come, uh, getting handed down. And that's uh, you know that's that's where we start to really see American music come together. Yeah, and, I, and you had a great quote that I should have quoted earlier, but I wanted you list lots of the music of the African 
influenced music of the Americas. You've got the tango in Argentina, in Uruguay, the candom. Brazil has all kinds of African influenced mm -hmm. music, like the samba. Colombia has its loopy driving cumbaya. You know, the Caribbean is stuffed to the gills with Afro American beats. You not whereas the United States has gospel, ragtime, jazz, the blues, and so-called hillbilly music, and these are just the traditional types. And then you say, yet if you had to take one of these, which of these objects doesn't belong? Tests about the music of the African diaspora in the Americas. The answer is obvious. Something happened to the African music in Anglo-Saxon North America that didn't happen to it anywhere else. And you've already explained the reason why. And I want to yeah. get, but but you sum it up really elegantly, I think. When you say, at their most animated, when everybody's goes flat out, theirs meaning the rest of the Americas, South mm -hmm. American Caribbean music trots, North American music runs. Whenever North American musicians approach the edge of chaos, they've got a distinct tendency to want to lean over it as far as they can go. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I still believe that's, extreme, that's yeah, really yeah. true. I mean, I mean, you listen to... Uh, Louis Armstrong doing St. St. Louis blues where he just starts shredding it, you know, and it's like, Whoa, okay. Uh, this yeah, is, yeah. this is something different, you know, or, uh, or Earl no, Palmer no, taking so a much. syncopation out of the beat for little Richard's tutti frutti. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's just, you know, going for that raw power and that crazed aggression. And, and you've got, um, some great quotes about the relationship between the the Africans who found themselves enslaved here. Imagine the difficulty of preserving your native language, culture, music under those circumstances, impossibly far from home, stuck among a hard, often cruel people in a vast, dangerous, and above all, alien land. And yet, African music persisted in North America, if in a form less pure than one finds in other lands of the diaspora. It's like their musical gifts were so strong that they s survived all this. And I love, as a proud Scots-Irish, you know, you nail it with the... Uh, hard, cruel, uh, or, you know, uh, hard, <laughs> often people, cruel man. people. Yeah, I mean, I'm from Borgen, Texas, in the in the Texas panhandle, and the original mm -hmm. town slogan was uh, 30 miles from water, six feet from hell. And, and uh, <laughs> That's about right, yeah. <laughs> well, my, my mom's people uh, uh, pioneered western Maine, so uh, <laughs> right. they were... They, <laughs> Very similar. They, 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 were not, uh, they were not soft people. They were not overly... Uh, imbued with the milk of human kindness either no but, but they uh, did have musical gifts yeah uh, at least to a degree you know it, it needed a little uh, bringing out but uh you know one of the things one of the people i was listening to as, as i wrote this book was uh, michael coleman the great irish fiddler uh you know just one of the one of the great uh performing musicians of the 20th century just an an, uh, an amazing virtuoso uh just this this absolutely fluid liquid uh player with with an unbelievable sense of rhythm and you listen to him closely and you listen to him playing these irish jigs and he's playing really fast and he's always leaning in on the beat you know he's always driving it ahead and that's what i think the irish gave you know is that we're not just going to play the music we're going to push the music and here's and another you, one i'd like to jump in and yeah. let's hear a little bit of uh, the song you pick out and I might have the pronunciation wrong. The Monahan, uh, yeah, the Monahan, uh, um, and and so well, let's uh, tell us a little bit about it before we cut into the song. Oh, it, it's just you know it's a classic Irish jig. It's got a couple parts, but 
uh, Coleman takes it off at a, at a, at a really high clip and just leans in uh, and he's, he's just pushing the beat just ever so slightly, but it, it gives it this like kind of headlong running down a hill quality that a lot of his jigs have. And, you know, I, I, I I've been to Irish weddings by accident uh, late at night when people are, are uh, maybe a little uh, in, in their, their cups, cups and, yes. uh, and, da- and dancing to the fiddle. And, you know, people are just flinging each other around. I mean, it really is uh, still part of Irish music and Irish culture. And it's, it's, it's funny as hell, but it's, it's impressive. I mean, there's a real dedication to, uh, to, to, to pushing the edge of chaos there. Yeah. And, uh, and, so, and you call it uh, yeah. dim- that, that uh, Collins, Coleman's performance demonstrates the same fierceness, the same implicit violence. So let's hear a little bit of that stuff. Well, that's something else. I mean, you you hear that, and you, if you never heard anything like that, I mean, if you never heard my, Coleman, you've never heard anything like that before. At this point in 2018, that is not something you come across every day. No, I mean, you hear it in in southern fiddle tunes, uh, you know, from the 1920s and a lot of hillbilly music, but even they're not quite as. Uh, well, some of them are pretty driving, but uh, a lot of them aren't even as driving as he is. Yeah, to know, me, it's. And, uh, like the difference between having a nice cup of sleepy time tea with some chamomile and valerian root and taking a big old snort at China white with Johnny thunders, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's bracing. Yes. And but, so you've got another record in here that you talk about that I think is equally bracing. Um, you say, you know, there's no one record as typical of, of West African music as, as a Coleman disc is a virus music, but you pick out, a record called, and correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong, by Yad Donkor by the Kumasi Trio. I recorded. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't kind of correct your pronunciation, unfortunately, because uh, <laughs> you know um, I'm not. I don't speak the languages there. But uh, but yeah, that's 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 one that uh, I fortunately uh, you know found on CD, and I was and I was I was just. Uh, uh, listening to the Kamasi Trio, and 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 you you listen to that record, and it's uh, there's there's definitely a beat to it, but there's more than one. You know, Michael Coleman's got one beat, and he's and he's crowding it. And these guys have got like several beats going on. There's a there's a guy hitting a wood block, or a, you know, like a clave, and uh, I'll be damned if I can figure out the pattern to it. You know, but yeah, you know I, there's a pattern. It's just, it, it's like so many gears. It, African music is so intricate when it comes to rhythm. Uh, you know, that that it, it's like it would be a shame to have just one rhythm going. Absolutely, and you describe it really well in the book. You say, in fact, there really is no beat, as Michael Coleman would have understood it. The beat is implied, not stated, something to dance around. There's a backspun sort of drive, sure, but more swerved than we know how to handle. The result to our ears sounds lazy, ragged, almost chaotic. In fact, it's anything but, as lending a careful ear to the deliberate, precise percussion demonstrates. And so let's hear uh, a, a few seconds of that so we, people can get a taste of what we're talking about with Yaw Dunkor by the Kumasi Trio featuring the virtuoso Ghanaian guitarist Jacob Sam. 
All right. I mean, if again, that's something that you don't hear every day in 2018. No, it's something we don't have a real framework for, you know. It's uh well we live in we live in kind of a golden age for reissued music now. You can get almost anything. But the really early stuff, uh there was a flowering about ten, fifteen years ago and everything got put out and it just failed to, to sort of to failed to make a mark, at least visibly. Uh although although I've had a couple of recent experiences that show that, you know, there's something going on. Uh, but it, it's really, uh, it still sounds pretty, pretty alien. Very alien. And I think what happened was the economics of the CD were so juicy for the music industry that you could put out virtually anything on a CD, find even a small mm-hmm. audience and make a profit. And you're already seeing that music vanishing again. It was, it was sort of like the way video stores in the late 90s had every movie yeah. ever and now Netflix has this limited selection that changes every month and so the streaming services are not very likely to be carrying the stomp and swerve CD much less the really obscure stuff but thanks to YouTube and I, I, I like uh, Google Play Music because you can upload your own tunes to it but YouTube yeah, yeah. you can find almost anything that's ever been put on CD as long as nobody's being overzealous about the copyright protection which and right. none of this stuff is still in copyright no. so and there are there are now like digital uh, online uh, libraries that have lots of MP3s of uh, of early recordings. So uh, that's kind of interesting. They're not universal yet. It's not like you don't have anything like Google Books, as far as I can tell. Not yet. Where, where you've just got it's yeah. coming though. Yeah, it's it's coming, and I think if we you know if everybody pitches in, we can preserve this music. And also you yeah. know. Uh, I, I talked to Peter Doggett about his excellent book, Electric Shock, The History of Recorded Music. And, you know, one thing that people forget is in the early days of the Edison, uh, and I can't remember if he's got the phonograph or the gramophone off the top of my head, but mm-hmm. those had each performance had to be, each disc had to be recorded with a new performance. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, the gramophone, Caruso could record once and they could, you know, print off uh, thousands of them before the masters went out. So, yeah, the cylinders were tough. Yes. So some weird things. I mean, going eventually on. they found a way of molding them, but uh, but uh, early on, no. I mean, you, you would you would put like five recording machines uh, to get five cylinders. Yeah. <laughs> and somebody, uh, you know, and some of those guys had to record, uh, you know, forty thousand takes of something yeah. if they had a hit. Yeah. Like what a curse! But I want to. I want to give. They're all different. Yeah. Everyone's unique, which, which you yeah. know, with it's just like a chess game. Every move you make means that you, you know, create a new strength and you lose it, yeah. an old weakness. I mean, it's, it's, there's always yeah. trade offs. But before yeah. we're, you know, as is my want, I've dived so deep, we're not covering the material as much as I wanted to. But I wanted to get to two artists in particular um, Daniel Decatur Emmett, uh, and basically the inventor, uh, inventor of minstrelsy. Uh, and his group, the Virginia Minstrels. So tell us about that. I mean, this is a topic, talk about controversial. Well, I mean, yeah, there had been already for, for, you know, 20 years, uh, people like white guys had been imitating on the stage, 
black musicians and dancers. And uh, they rubbed burnt cork on their face to do it and pretended, uh, you know, they, they uh, basically pretended to be black. And white audiences uh, either laughed or applauded, depending on the kind of act it was. The dancers, uh, they usually just, you know, that wasn't comedy, but uh, there was comedy mixed in at, at the expense of, you know, ragged the ragged black population of America, which was ragged because they were being denied basic human rights and had no money or anything. So, uh, yeah. And that's an important point I like to make here. I mean, it's, it's easy to bash the Virginia minstrels for being racist, but let's keep in mind that they lived in a context in which chattel slavery was the norm and chattel slavery was a unique invention of the Europeans around the 16th, 17th century. That's also uniquely horrible. I mean, a completely, new level of dehumanization. You know, people talk about slavery going back to the beginning of time and being present in every culture. Well, chattel slavery was not, and chattel slavery no, was that, that, fucking No, that was, horrible. yeah. <laughs> that had the unique, uh, you know, uh, aspects of modernity to it where it was uh, all-encompassing and uh, almost mechanized in its, in its uh, ruthlessness. Yeah, and enforced so, on generation uh, after generation. But let's get back to yeah. Emmett and the music. So, so what yeah, happened so there Emmett, in the Five Points of New York? So what happened is, uh, you know, he, he was hanging around in his uh, rooms one day uh, with a couple other guys, uh, uh, Frank Pelham, a couple other guys who were uh, uh, known also for uh, – Emmett played banjo and sang and, you know, blacked up and did it. And uh, – to you know, basically imitate the the African American musicians because African Americans had a reputation for music at this point. African American music was already recognized as being something interesting by white America, uh, not to the point where they would actually uh, allow African American entertainers on the stage and pay them and give them dignity, but uh, their music was certainly interesting enough. You know, this is an age long before recorded music. So uh, you could either put it out on a sheet music or you could get up on stage and play it. And that was the only way to get music uh, around. And some of these guys were taking uh, the songs that they heard uh, down south uh, from enslaved people and uh, free blacks and black entertainers. And they were uh, stealing them and uh, blacking up and playing them on stage. So a couple of these guys were sitting around. They'd been working as individual acts. Like uh, one guy would come out and play a banjo and sing a song in between somebody else who would do like Swiss minstrelsy. That was the the Swiss minstrels were were, were famous at the time who'd who'd yodel and play bells and you know all this other variety act type stuff. And these four guys who were professionals were sitting around. I'm sure they were probably drinking some, and uh, they had their instruments and they started to jam, which was weird. They started to play a couple songs. One guy played the tambourine, uh, which was a common African-American instrument. Uh, one guy played the bones, another uh, common African-American inst- instrument. Uh, Daniel Decatur Emmett uh, played the fiddle, and uh, you had a banjo guy. And so these four started playing, and they say, hey, you know, this sounds pretty good. So they took it to the stage next door of the, uh, of the American Hotel, it was basically a bar with a, with a few rooms upstairs and a, and a, and a, and a little stage in the bar room. And uh, this was in uh, January, 1843. 
and they start playing and everybody just starts falling out. It's like, what the hell is this? This is amazing because they weren't playing it as individuals. They had formed a band doing this stuff. They, they found a, a kind of an, a, a fake African-American musical vocabulary that worked that, imitated African music while still uh, being a spectacle while uh, covering some of their own audience's concerns. You know, they had to be loud. They have to be uh, uh, demonstrative. Uh, They were playing for tough New York City audiences on the Bowery. Yeah, the legendary uh, Bowery, which, you know. Yeah, uh, the legendary, which which is. Anybody who's seen gangs of. Gangs of New York uh, knows what we're talking about with the Bowery, and it goes all the way up to CBGB's in the 1970s. I mean, this neighborhood was rough and tough for well over a century. And I think we we do all in the service of naming each of the guys. So I've got I've got the book here handy, which is an advantage I have over you. Yeah, so you had Dick Pelham and Frank Bauer keeping time on tambourine and bones, which was nothing yeah. more than a pair of cattle ribs that you rattled like musical spoons. Then you had uh, Emmett on fiddle, and then you had uh, now I'm losing his name. Whit- Billy Whitlock, uh, on Billy percussive violin. Yeah. And there's a great description. You, you 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 try to grapple with the question of what did they sound like? And you said the songs are basically Turkey in the Straw, which yeah. is Emmett's name <laughs> I mean, for it. Yeah. And you know, before that it was Zip Zip Coon. So you know, he's already making it less racist than than the material he had to work with. Uh, and I'm not trying to make excuses for their racism. I mean, these guys were racist, but it was a totally racist culture. But the important part is the music. And and as you saw, you quote a as a witness to their antics observed, it could be very difficult to describe their performance in libretto, and musical score would not do it justice. Pelham, for instance, seemed animated by a savage energy. And in an age where real musicians were supposed to sit still, his frenzied tambourine bashing, quote, nearly wrung him off his seat. Whitlock frailed away at his gut-string banjo with, quote, complete abandon, while Emmett furiously hacked a fiddle held backwoods-style at his chest, and Brower kept popping up from his chair to stomp around the stage in his boots while rapidly rattling a pair of rib bones in each hand, putting the whole arm into it. I mean... You know, it's like it's like imagining Brian Jones and Keith Richards and Mick Jagger getting together for the first time, pretty yeah. much. I mean, basically, it was the superstars of the scene, and they got together, and they were, you know, as in all bands, they were playing together, but they were also playing in competition with each other, you know, to, they were pushing each other on to greater heights. And uh, they they invented something. I mean, everybody recognized it. They immediately went on tour they went to England uh, right away. It was it was the Sex Pistols tour in reverse uh, because they went to England and broke up just like the Sex Pistols came here and broke <laughs> up. And, uh, but then you know they but they'd already like lit this match and soon you start seeing uh, you know Christie's Minstrels, all these other people uh, doing it. Dan Emmett uh, joined Christie's Minstrels eventually and wrote Dixie or stole a chair in square as as as, uh, as the case may be. Um, but uh and it, it becomes this huge explosion. Uh already in uh eighteen fifty eighteen fifty, uh Jerry Thomas, the guy who wrote the first bartender's guide, is uh out in California as a twenty year old and uh he's tending bar for a while and then he starts managing a minstrel band and, and uh going around the mining camps and sticking up show posters with pine tar. And uh it, so it it had spread everywhere. You know, it was 
It was part of America. It was immediately recognized. It was something that we all in America, it, it was a part of American culture that had been there and uh, they just brought it to the fore and shoved it in people's faces in a way that hadn't been done before. Yeah, and, and, so and they, I, they kind of, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to, I, I basically want to wrap with, with, um, uh, a, a selection from uh, Fiddlin' John Carson's 1924 version of Old Dan Tucker, which was one of the Virginia Minstrels' songs. I mean, uh, yeah. I believe Emmett wrote that, um, uh, or at least you know yeah, made did. it his own. Yeah, he wrote he wrote that song, and and it's this was another thing that was fascinating to me was realizing that these 1920 recordings that we think of as wow, this is the most archaic, purest form of Anglo-Celtic. American right. music you can find. And if you really dig into it like you have, no, 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 it's not. What it is is these hillbillies are doing 50-year-old, what was popular 50 years earlier, and it was totally African-American music or the best imitation they could. So let's hear yeah. Fiddlin' John Carson uh, and, and just for a few seconds of that. So, David, I mean, this has been amazing. Uh, uh, once again, I have failed to cover the topic, but the book is Stomp and Swerve, and I think it, it does it – Just it was a very enlightening and educating and exciting to me, and I cannot recommend the Companion CD high enough. Um, it, it, if you like old music, if you like exploring music like you haven't heard before – there's a ton here, and there's a ton of nuance we could dig. I mean, we didn't even get to Burt Williams. Um, the great oh, there's African so much. I mean, it's you know, it's it's an overwhelming amount. Uh, when when writing this book, I just felt like I was, uh, you know, skimming the tops of the peaks. I mean, there's you get into like Will Marion Cook and his uh, Afro-American uh, folk song singers, which is just some of the most sophisticated swinging music like 20, 30 years before swing. You know, it's it's crazy. It's crazy what what, what was out there and what, uh, you know, only some of which made it to record. But uh, uh, it's been a real pleasure coming and talking about this. I have to say, this is a, a, a part of our, our culture and uh, part of my personal uh, uh, path through life that I, I will always want to re revisit. Well, excellent. And, you know, usually when a guest compliments me like that, I immediately get them to commit to come back on the show. So uh, uh, your offer is accepted and we'll have you back. Uh, happy to do it. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll take it a little bit forward. Uh, we got about to 1840. So, uh, and the book starts in 1843. So we've got yeah. a, a lot of ground to cover several chapters more of the book. And so we'll definitely have you back on our uh, fourth or fifth season of the show. I can't remember which it is at this point, but again, David Wondrich, author of Stomp and Swerve. Thanks again for coming on the show. It's really Thank you been so fun. much. This was, this was a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. Next week, author Robert Gordon returns to discuss Can't Be Satisfied, his biography of Muddy Waters. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com.
Stomp and Swerve, How American Music Got Hot, 1843 to 1924, is available from Chicago Review Press and can be found wherever fine books are sold. Also, don't miss the accompanying CD or streaming collection of the same title available from Amazon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 